0: I mean, ClimateGate showed this how the sausage is made, but ClimateGate is antiquated now because now there's not even they don't even care anymore. I mean, we're having a daily. You can read this stuff. ClimateGate stuff uh, is mostly out in the open now.
1: You're listening to the Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here. CorbettReport.com in a conversation that is being re- recorded in December of 2019 and. December of 2019, that can only mean one thing. We've just passed over the one decade anniversary of ClimateGate. Yes, ClimateGate. Do you remember? I bet you some of the newer viewers of the Corbett Report probably don't remember ClimateGate, but it is something that I covered heavily at the time and for years afterwards, because it was a very important story that really exposed how the sausage is made in the climate science factory and uh, taught us a lot of things about uh, the what I think a lot of people suspected about what was really happening under the hood in climate science world. Um, and it is uh, a pleasure and an honor to have our guest on today to talk about this, because he's obviously someone who's been covering this extensively over the course of the past decade. And he has also uh, written The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. Uh, from which he has excised Chapter 10 specifically about ClimateGate uh, and uh, posted that on his website, climatedepot.com, which, if you're not familiar with Climate Depot, is a very valuable compendium of all sorts of information, all the daily news and information you could possibly ask for regarding climate science is up there. Uh, So I hope people will check that out. And I will, of course, link up this chapter that we're going to be talking about today with regards to ClimateGate. Mark Morano, thank you very much for joining us on the program again.
0: Thank you, James. Happy to be here. Uh, I'm heading off to Madrid, the UN climate summit here in a few days, and that's always going to be uh, fun. Three years ago, I was almost—I was actually arrested by the UN climate cops and escorted out of the one in uh, Morocco. So you never know what the United Nations is going to, what strong-arm tactics they're going to employ.
1: You have that ability to really upset people by simply uh, disagreeing with them, um, which seems a bit strange, especially since we're talking about a scientific subject. Of course, they can just spout scientific facts to you, can't they? Or No, you know, it seems to be a lot of people get extremely angry.
0: <laughs> Actually, oddly, the whole climate debate is is garnered around... Not citing scientific facts. Instead, they in fact most of it is on around the ninety-seven percent consensus. They just want to say that all scientists agree, and unless you're a climate scientist, who are you to dispute this? and that's Unless they, unless you're a sixteen-year-old Swedish
1: girl, then it's okay. Right. She can talk about it, but if, if you you can't yeah, talk then, about it, all right? Then you're uh, an expert. No, yeah. Well, let's, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this because uh, ClimateGate is such an important subject and I really want people to go back in my archives and take a look at some of the things I've written and to read your, art, uh, your chapter here uh, uh, from your book, which is just a great compendium of all the sort of highlights or lowlights, I suppose, in this case. But for people who are completely brand new to this, tell us a little bit in a, in a nutshell, what is ClimateGate?
0: Well, back in November uh, 2009, the, we don't know if they were leaked or if they were hacked, but a series of emails from the University of East Anglia, which is, as you would probably call it, a ground zero for the United Nations, the cadre of elitist United Nations scientists, uh, where they, all, the, all communication was basically going in and out of was, we think it was probably, could have been released by a whistleblower or it could have been hacked. But I think I always felt it was a whistleblower who just had had enough. And it was leaked on a, uh, I guess it was a Russian server at the time. So there was Russia collusion mm. without us even knowing it. And essentially, these emails, uh, and there was a couple different waves of emails, ClimateGate 1.0, ClimateGate 2.0, exposed the United Nations top scientists as essentially colluding for a campaign cause on how to present global warming not just to the public but to governments, the media, and even the scientific community. You had scientists like Phil Jones and Michael Mann um, and Kevin Trenbrith and others who literally conspired on how to keep dissenting voices, studies out of peer review, threatening journal editors and the like. And it was essentially amounted to what I call a lobbying or campaign cause where anything off narrative was attacked and blackballed and blacklisted, and so they had to keep this narrative, keep the campaign of CO2 is the driver of climate, is the control knob of climate, and therefore we need you know, United Nations solutions. They were very obedient scientists, and this really exposed them. Uh, you know, One scientist, Robert Austin from Princeton, said he sees Climategate as fraud, pure and simple, with all the, uh, uh, the uh, details that it exposed.
1: Well, actually, that leads to one of the most interesting things about ClimateGate that I never see anyone talking about, which is that the information commissioner in the UK actually did find that the uh, the, uh, the researchers in question at the University of East Anglia actually did. They breached the Freedom of Information Act by refusing to comply with requests for the data. They were in breach of the law, but they couldn't be prosecuted for that because the offense had taken place more than six months ago. Because the emails, of course, were related to things that had happened years in the past. So they couldn't be prosecuted for it. But the information commissioner found they did break the law, which is, I mean, pretty black and white when you think about it. And yet, and yet, we are constant. if we are told anything at all about ClimateGate, we are told in a few words, it's been debunked. I mean, that's essentially the extent of the response to this. Talk about the way that (laughs) ClimateGate
0: is- yeah, well, I'll get to that in a minute and uh, how it was debunked. But um, back to your point on um, uh, Climategate being uh, what you were just saying about, oh, the Freedom of Information Act. Phil Jones sent out various emails, including to Michael Mann, saying we need to delete these. Michael Mann pass, saying, will you pass this on uh, to, the, to, to your associate to make sure we delete these requests? Because they knew it was going to make them look very bad. This was them, you know, again... It's inspiring to suppress information that was against the narrative. So Michael Mann never got, you know, he said, oh, i got the message. Thank you. I'll I'll get right on it. He claims he never actually uh, deleted anything, but it's highly questionable. But he did pass along the email. And so they were frantically spreading emails when they realized these Freedom of Information Act to delete all the material that was being requested. So clearly, even if they didn't find them legal, these emails clearly exposed them. To be breaking the law and illegal, and, I'll, and that was just a minor point though, because the larger picture was just of this campaign cause. I don't, I don't know of a better word to describe it than that. It's not science, uh, because you know science isn't about lobbying. Judith Curry this week, in the in the run up to the UN climate summit in Madrid, actually had a great line. <clears throat> the climatologist from Georgia Tech, she actually said that the the cart went before the horsehair and that the scientists were actually doing the bidding for the UN political policymaking. So that's essentially really what ClimateGate exposed, that these scientists weren't actually just looking at the science trying to figure out what was going on. They were tasked and they were selected by all these different countries, handpicked, essentially. They weren't gonna pick skeptics. In the early days, they did. That's why you had many skeptics like John Christie and uh, Chris Lancey ended up leaving and resigning in protest, Roger Pilkey Sr. Once they realized what the process was, I mean, we had stories of John Christie saying he would sit at a table with other scientists. They were going over the reports, and the other scientists will say, "We have to make the report so alarming the world will have to act." I mean, these were lobbyists, not scientists. So that's what that's what was so shocking. But so this was done, and, you, and the Climategate scandal showed these scientists basically saying what points, what can we highlight to make the Kyoto Protocol, the, the, uh, the Copenhagen Agreement, what can we do to make this happen? We have to convince people. They were on a mission, which is really just antithetical to the scientific process.
1: Absolutely right. And, and speaking of uh, how climate science tends to avoid actual facts and data, let's throw out a bit of actual fact and, and data in yeah. this conversation. Let's talk about, uh, do you have any particular emails that jump out at you from that batch that you thought were particularly egregious?
0: Uh, Some of the ones, well, the ones I previously mentioned with Michael Mann saying that he was going to delete the email, uh, some of the most amazing involved Michael Mann because they were his colleagues, people like uh, Keith Briffa and others who publicly were silent on his, remember this whole hockey stick chart that Michael Mann became iconic and he still goes around and he calls it the iconic chart and he still goes around claiming to be a Nobel Prize winner. This is the Penn State professor. Uh, they actually behind the scenes ridiculed, laughed at and just said they didn't believe that the hockey stick was accurate, valid. There were so many problems with it. Uh, and it was an amazing thing because publicly they said nothing. Publicly, they allowed the U.N. to reprint the graph in the 2001 report multiple times. They allowed the media to run with it like this was a defining. Keep in mind, this graph completely overturned the 1990. UN IPCC report, which showed the medieval warm period much warmer than current temperatures. So I think the emails on that were just so shocking of of what they were willing to do, because even though his colleagues harshly criticized the methodology, the results and the statistics behind the hockey stick, they remained silent and they allowed all this nonsense to go out in the public, and they allowed Michael Mann to become iconic, in his words.
1: Right. Uh, talk about the one and only email that I think was ever addressed, even even tangentially, really, in the media coverage of this, which was "hide the decline."
0: Hide the decline is a fascinating thing. Now. I, I will give the the some there's some credit most people on the discussions and most, not most, but a lot of skeptics, including some of in the media misinterpreted that to think that there was a general global cooling trend and that, uh, you know, that they were hiding that actually it had to do uh, with the temperature trend beginning in the 1960s. They I guess they ran out of the proxy data or they switched to a different. So one scientist likened it to comparing apples and oranges, but when they did that, it showed the declining temperatures i guess the present day so in order to fix that because they couldn't release a temperature graph like that they went back and they essentially uh found it basically tortured the data found a different temperature set so they could show a warming since that time but they were still manipulating and trying to do the uh campaign cause if you will to keep everything on narrative but it did not mean there was a general cooling trend and then they hid that decline it meant that they switched temperature data sets comparing apples to oranges in order to fit their narrative does that does that explain it without getting into actually
1: it's even a step further than that because they were using trees as thermometers which we are told worked perfectly yes. well for thousands of years but then somehow in the 1960s they diverged from temperatures and oh well we'll just have to hide that fact that it was declining in the tree data set
0: and that was an underlying thing is if it, it, they, if certain things they know to be so or must be so, they would reject that data and fix it. Another example of that just in modern times is the sea level rise, their tide gauges show no acceleration in sea level rise. So they switched. They started using satellite sea level rise in 1993, and it shows a big, a, a big jump. Again, apples to oranges, two different methodologies. And now the you know, global warming orange will only use the satellite. In fact, they'll say we had a huge jump in the 90s. Well, well no, we didn't because tide gauges haven't shown anything significant. But because you switched methodology, yes, it does show a jump. That's the kind of thing that Hide the Decline represented. But again, it's whatever sticks to the wall, whatever they can do. That's what the climate. One of my favorite analysis was, I believe it was Rex Murphy from the Canadian broadcast. He said that climate advocacy and scientists went to bed and both had a very good time because that's essentially what happened. The scientists became advocates And they essentially weren't interested in anything that put them off the narrative. And that essentially, in a nutshell, is what Hide the Decline was about. Trees are fine when they suit your purpose. But when they don't suit your purpose, hey, we got to find a different data set. And who cares? We'll just splice them together. Even if even if we wouldn't do that normally, this is what we need to do, because that's the message we have to get out.
1: Yeah, and and speaking of treeometers, I will dig up and find a great article that uh, uh, Steve McIntyre had at uh, uh, Climate Audit uh, several years ago about the most important tree in the world. And when you read that story and find out the kinds of things they're doing with this proxy data, it's just nonsense. Um, my, I think my what favorite. I, just, uh,
0: well, I, I think quick, my, now, my Steve favorite. Steve McIntyre uh, and Ross and are two of the biggest heroes in this whole thing. I mean, they. They went after Michael Mann relentlessly for a decade or or more, And, and they were a big part. If you read the Climategate emails, they were the biggest thorn in the side of the top UN scientists, and just thank your lucky stars that we had those two.
1: Absolutely, and yeah, that's what a lot of or some of the emails swirl around is discussion of McIntyre and McKittrick.
0: Yeah, Um, I think my my favorites. By the way, my favorites are people saying things like, "Well, we can't release the data because all you want to do is find a problem with it." We've had many, and Pat Michaels and others have gotten emails like that. I would release the data to you, but all you want to do is find a problem with it. You know, again, against the narrative, they're not going to. They're not interested in you finding. They're interested in this fits the narrative. Another example of that is the NOAA paper the pause buster when president obama was heading off to paris climate agreement in 2015 uh a, a NOAA released this paper saying that the pause never exists how do you deal with the pause they had 60 excuses for why this global warming pause existed the hell with the 60 excuses let's just do a new paper revising the data and saying it never existed that paper was rushed to peer review uh, within weeks and no other paper could have gotten that kind of, uh, you know, expediency, but it was politically necessary for Obama to be able to say, the great global warming pause is no more. It never existed, even after we had 60 excuses. Again, that's a kind of example of what ClimateGate was, what ex- it exposed behind the scenes.
1: Yeah. M- my own personal favorite batch is the Harry ReadMe file, which was a yes. ReadMe file included with this of, they were the notes of a programmer who had who's trying to sort through the, uh, the CRU's database. And you have have to read them where he's talking about artificially adjusting to look closer to real temperatures and using hundreds, if not thousands of dummy stations that somehow ended up in the data that they were using. And just you read through that and you see the mess that was the data sets they were working from. But don't worry, they can predict the the weather to, you know, tenth of a degree Celsius a hundred years from now. Tr- trust them. The, the science is settled. Well,
0: Yeah, James, you mentioned how the sausage is made. And the Harry Readme file is a great example of that. It's statistical torturing of data basically to get what you want. And it's not that—it's really not that hard. I and mean, we have all these adjustments. If you go back 1990, 1999 or so, NASA showed the 1930s as warmer than the 1990s. If you look at the data now, the 1930s are cooler than the 1990s. They've historically gone back and revised it. And they're very done with little algorithms and statisticals. There's no way the average person could understand it. And they don't even really release it to the public or other scientists to act adequately understand it. But this is the kind of stuff in the Harry Readme file, uh, which you which know, just showed the programmers just angst and just you know just frustration at the mess that they had there. But this is what we're dealing with. This is the modern record. A simpler way of looking. The other thing they do is show the scale of temperatures. Um, Patrick Moore, the Greenpeace co-founder. Gave a great talk in Canada a few weeks back at a at a conference I attended. And you show the scale of temperatures in, you know, when they could declare a hottest year or a hottest, we're talking hundreds of a degree, James. And this is, it sounds impressive. It's the hottest year on record since record keeping began in 1880, 1860. Until you realize, That the hundredths of a degree difference between other hottest years is statistically, I guess it's immeasurable. I always say it's unmeasurable immeasurable. I've been corrected on that. You You cannot distinguish between the temperature difference because the margin of error is tenths of a degree. And this is what even we get such a stink of this 2014 that Associated Press actually did a correction and NASA was forced to backpedal and admit that these years were statistically insignificant. Of course, it was in small print. And it, it didn't affect the big headlines at the time. But this is some of the nonsense. But if you look at it from a scale, uh, you know, instead of like on a one deg- on degree Celsius, you can see a temperature that's essentially flat for almost two, you know, a century and a half or a slight warming trend. It's nothing significant. One of my favorites was Leonard um, Ber- Bernstedt from uh, from Norway, the, the, form, the top mm-hmm. scientist there. He said you can't even distinguish... Uh, it, we wouldn't even tell the temperature change without modern thermometers. Essentially, over the last 100 years, the temperature is so small. And the Nobel Prize winning physicist Ivar G. said it's so small of an increase over 100 years, it's not even a fever. You can't see it. But if you do all that kind of statistical nonsense, you can scare the public. And that's what they're trying to do. I mean, ClimateGate showed the, how the sausage is made, but ClimateGate is antiquated now because now – there's not even they don't even care anymore. I mean, we're having a daily, you can read this stuff, ClimateGate stuff uh is mostly out in the open now. It is just outright out, you know, the stuff they're lobbying for with this climate emergency and the claims that they make now. Uh, you know, Michael Mann, for instance, is saying that after every hurricane, he comes on the day or two after to say that we're facing major cities underwater, essentially, unless we act. And acting, of course. Even John Kerry admitted if the U.S. zeroed out their emissions, if we shut off all fossil fuels, it would have no impact on global emissions because of all the developing world. So it's a futile effort, even if you believe the climate emergency claims.
1: Well, I guess unless you can squelch all of humanity's uh, progress and and just make sure no one ever has access to energy ever again, then we could live happily. Um, Of course, nonsense. Let's get to the heart of the debunking which has apparently taken place of climate, it's been multiple inquiries have debunked this, hasn't Hasn't there been?
0: Yes, they had, uh, you know, I guess, around six, maybe seven even uh, of these reports. And what it essentially amounted to, and this was right after climate, first of all, they tried to ignore climate gate. And this was a key thing. Uh, there was really, the. Uh, the establishment especially thought it was much ado about nothing and just let it go, which was, I always say, I remember being quoted in Newsweek magazine, thanking the global warming establishment and the establishment media for ignoring Climategate because it allowed climate skeptics to bring out and, and basically expose it without all that interference from the media and pushback. But a few months later, they realized this is serious. It was so serious, by the way. People like climatologist Judith Curry who was a believer, you know, a convinced believer of the climate crisis, literally switched her view and became a skeptic within almost you know, less than a year from reading these emails. That's how powerful it was. But they came out with all these different committees, including Penn State did an inquiry, multiple UK inquiries, including East Anglia. The Associated Press did their own analysis through all the emails. And their whole goal was this basically amounts to the global warming establishment. Uh, essentially investigating itself and declaring that they were fine and there was nothing to be seen here. And in committee after committee basically went through and they had people on it with vested interests. Some of the UK committees actually had renewable energy uh, advocates and people receiving mass subsidies who would directly benefit from climate policy. Running uh, the inquiries. The Penn State committee that investigated Michael Mann, and I don't make this up, I actually quote literally concluded that because Michael Mann was so quoted in the media and made so much money for the university, he couldn't possibly have done anything wrong. And that's not, you know, one of the analysts said this was a parody of an investigation, that these words were actually in the report. But the media didn't actually even quote any of those outrageous quotes. They just said, oh, Penn State has exonerated Michael Mann. But the global warming establishment investigated itself and declared that it was okay. And by the way, there's no other industry where you can investigate yourself like that. Usually you would employ independent uh, outside groups, but you know, this is what they did. And then they moved on. Seth Bornstein, of course, the Associated Press reporter, did a whole analysis of all the emails and declared that there was nothing to be seen. It was just scientists using, uh, what was the phrase I think he said, you know, inarticulate or unfortunate choice of words at times. Um, but it's clear, and I tried to, in my book chapter, which is at Climate Depot, I tried to put in some of the best highlights. You can actually see the scientists colluding to keep the narrative alive. And they seem to be pretty much willing to do anything. One of the most um, uh, chali- easy things they can do is just suppress dissenting information. In fact, one of the emails that sticks out of my mind, now you mentioned that we're talking about it, I believe it was Phil Jones, and I can't remember who he was writing to. It may have been Keith Briffa about attending a solar conference of solar scientists, astrophysicists. And he's very disgusted because he said, they're not buying essentially CO2 is the driver of climate. And we have to figure out a way to basically ban these guys and keep their data and information out of the UN process. Because they know they're the world's top scientists. If those scientists aren't speaking through the UN, they're basically marginalized. Because the world is looking at the thousands of top scientists, which by the way, is literally only 52 scientists as of the last report, look at whether CO2 causes warming. The rest of these scientists, which is only in the hundreds, and they're actually not scientists, professors, sociologists, anthropologists, many from Greenpeace and other environmental groups, um, they're just looking at impact studies. And in the book, I go through and actually show that they're now calling models, which are nothing more than emission scenarios or predictions, uh, they call that data. And that's fascinating because that's, that's their new data. So I always call it the misdirection. If you say, for instance, polar bears, polar bears, it's more dire than we thought. It's like, wait a minute, how could it be more dire? They're at or near historic population highs. Every international body has never counted this many polar bears. They're thriving in numbers. This is like record booming. How could it be more dire? Well, our predictions of the year 2100 are now more dire than our predictions were just five years ago. So it's a misdirection. Same with temperature. We're in a three and a half year cooling trend from the high of the El Nino, but they'll go on and they'll say, July was the hottest month completely ignoring it it's just a, it's that kind of misdirection if if the current reality fails to alarm make scary predictions of the future that's one of the things they do and that's again if you read the ClimateGate emails you can actually get a full understanding for uh, their tactics and how they work and and by the way they've won i hate to say that they did climate gate was a horrible scandal but they overcame it and they just they they persevered and actually one of the reforms after ClimateGate, I used to, and not just me, but other climate skeptics from Heartland and scientists, including people like Will Happer and others, were regularly on CNN, MSNBC, mainstream media, NBC. I was on ABC News. I mean, they used to interview, it was about after Climategate that they realized we cannot allow climate skeptics any more airtime in mainstream media. The LA Times said they won't even print letters to the editor Uh, Of anyone skeptical. CBS News, as a result of the climate, uh, I think it was right before ClimateGate, but around the same time, their lead anchor said he wouldn't interview a climate skeptic, a climate denier for the same reason he wouldn't do a Holocaust denier if he were doing a story. I mean, direct comparison. So, what that's done is it shut out all the skeptics from mainstream media. And that's where we are now, where they'll, if you even look at public polling, the belief is going back up because people aren't hearing that dissent anymore. So one of the impacts of ClimateGate was the media basically banned all dissenting voices to help out the, sci- the UN process, and it worked.
1: Yeah, and actually, now that I think about it, that's something I even noticed in preparation for our conversation. I was going through some of your interviews on on abc and fox and bbc in the past that you did on climate gate and d- debating bill nye and things and just running circles around yeah. him which yeah. is <laughs> always fun to watch but i don't get to watch that anymore because they won't well, have, fox you on will still
0: have you on and all the alternative media but but none of the networks not cnn not i mean i used to be on msnbc in debates abc news regularly debated this i mean i'm talking right after climate gate around that time now it's not even on the table nbc news announces chuck todd on meet the press we are not going to debate the science to global warming. I mean, they just declared it over. And it just it's amazing. And it has an impact. You have people like Mitt Romney, Republican. You have people like Lindsey Graham uh, who are now forming essentially like a climate caucus where they're going to come up with a Green New Deal light. They're accepting the science. So it's even getting into Republicans because mainstream Republicans only get their news from CNN, ABC, CBS, and they don't hear any dissent. And that's one of the issues. So it's, again, the legacy of Climategate is the other side, the, the U.N. activist side, got smarter and more effective. And they're actually now, I would say, winning even more than they were before.
1: Yeah, that, exactly. yeah, that is really the sad truth of it now that I reflect on that. And perhaps bet, no better sign of that than the festivities that are taking place in Madrid that you're about to head off to. Tell people about what's happening.
0: Well, every year and I've been going to these since 2002, the Rio, uh, not Rio, but the uh, dirt. Uh, South African Earth Summit they had in 2002. I go to all these conferences and actually at that one, they were there to talk about sustainable development and and limiting development. And, you know, they talk about planned recessions uh, at these and degrowth strategies and stopping endless GDP growth because the earth can't handle it. But at these conferences, they'll have, uh, they fly, the world leaders and celebrities, the airports are jammed with uh, private jets, number one. They have chefs being flown in to do special, you know, lobster and and all kinds of uh, specialty devices. They'll actually, actually allow the chefs to be interviewed in articles talking about, well, these world leaders feast on champagne and caviar and talk about world poverty and development. This is what these conferences are about. An ex- interesting example of the, at the Madrid conference this year, they had a list of all the countries sending delegations. It was shocking. Do you know what country is sending the most delegates out of every country in the world? Democratic Republic of Congo. Why would the Democratic Republic of Congo send that many people? Africa is at the receiving end of the UN climate, I call it slush fund, $100 billion a year. Africa is going to get all that redistribution of wealth, or so you would think, but it ends up, and I interviewed a South African development activist about this, it goes to the governments best able to keep their people locked in poverty. And it goes to those leaders of those governments to build monuments to themselves, ensure their reelection, give out contracts to their friends, have all this money, and at the same time, they're lauded as eco-friendly because they keep the economic development, and, and uh, which is immoral because people who don't even have, you know, running water, electricity. So interestingly enough, and not just Democrat, Republic the Congo, but many of the African countries have the highest attendance rates and sending the most delegates because they are there to lobby for that money. And that's what this is all about. In fact, the whole UN process, Otto uh, Edenhofer, who's a IPCC vice chairman, this is not about uh, climate or energy. It, it has nothing to do with it. This is about redistribution of wealth. The former climate chief, Christina Figueres, has said, we seek, and this is an exact quote, a centralized transformation that will make life on planet Earth very different from everyone. Same with the Green New Deal, by the way. The architects of it said, this is not a change. This is not a climate thing. This is a change the economy thing. These were the architects who wrote it, same principle. And in my book, I go back, the 1960s and 70s, same solutions, different environmental scares so global warming is the latest environmental scare with the exact same solutions of central planning international sovereignty threatening treaties and wealth redistribution that's what madrid's all about
1: (laughs) yeah it really is i mean the vision of the future if these people have their way is essentially a bunch of peasants scrabbling in the soil to try to make ends meet while the the lords fly from castle to castle talking about how they're going to save the earth essentially
0: well here's the other thing the, UN, the EU just issued that every single country essentially in the EU is failing all their green targets. I mean, there's, this is just a disaster. But an academic now, I believe it was from Australia, a global climate activist, academic professor, came out and said it's time to start considering the UN being able to use military measures in order to enforce these emission goals. So now we're faced with the prospect of some kind of international, you know, the UN peacekeeping force. Imagine the UN climate saving force this is, and, and there's plenty of work for that force to do because all the countries are failing to meet these targets which they all claimed and this is where we're headed it's 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 frightening the bit and i'll get to the trump administration in a minute because it's it's been a key key disappointment on that front um but the 2015 paris agreement i did a report recently james about you know maybe a month ago that said that i went back in 2015 we had al gore john Kerry. President Obama, all saying that future generations will thank us, we've saved the planet. This is a monumental moment in history. What happened? Now, four years later, we're told that that wasn't enough, that it's a failure, that it was inadequate, that it never would have worked, that it was woefully inadequate. So no matter how much you appease this, there's never gonna be enough. It's not like we come up with a new treaty this year and sign on that they're gonna say, oh, they'll, they'll say we saved the planet. But a few years later, it's not gonna be enough. They want more and more and more.
1: Yeah, So let's get to that Trump disappointment that you talked about. I guess we're going to talk about Will Happer.
0: Well, yeah, I feel I feel bad for Will Happer. He was he he went to the Trump administration. He was going to give it uh, one year, I guess. Uh, maybe he was here two years now but to try to get essentially a presidential commission on climate. Now, keep in mind, the United Nations started this in 1988. The United Nations essentially said we're going to look at CO2, whether it's a problem or not. They had no incentive to find out it wasn't a problem so their incentive is to constantly say not only is it a problem but it's getting worse and worse and worse and we must act so you have a group the same group is in charge of finding the problem and, and, and making the claims about how dire it is they're also in charge of, of of providing the solutions and where all the money is going to come through them and we're just going to empower them and they, they'll be able to centrally transform that they'll make life on earth different for us that's a clear conflict of interest number one so number two no government, no no official study since 1988 has ever countered the United Nations. And I believe I'm right on that. I mean, and there's, there's been a lot of independent studies, scientists. The Trump administration, for the first time since this whole scare started in 1988 with the UN, had a chance to have a federally commissioned climate commission, including people like Richard Lindzen and, uh, and Will Happer and Judith Curry and others. And Trump from everything I've heard and talked to people behind the scenes, actually approved this committee. But what happened? The people around him, including a court, according to reports, Mick Mulvaney and others, uh, basically said, oh, no, we can't do that right now, and dragged their feet, dragged their feet, dragged their feet. They had a meeting in April with President Trump, April 20, 2019, and Trump turned to Will Happer and actually said, I thought I approved this commission. What happened? And they said, well, yeah, you did. But, you know, it got delayed because they delayed it. And then they said, we can't do it now because it's too close to the election. So they won. They, they deferred the whole commission. Will Happer then left the administration. He's kind of frustrated. He's willing to go back in a second term if there's a second term. and if, But he's not even convinced they're going to do it in a second term. Here's the problem. By missing this historic opportunity, we had the chance to have the first government document pushing back. All hell would have broken loose. Now, I understand establishment Republicans. This is like, in their minds, it's like Vietnam. It's a no-win situation. Why would they want to deal with the science? It's going to be catastrophic. They're going to have to go on, you know, you know, face George Stephanopoulos and Chuck Todd on NBC, and they're going to have to answer questions. They don't want to deal with it. But There's the the, the secondary problem here is none of Trump's Trump's cabinet, including the man who hired me, EPA uh, chief uh, Andrew Wheeler. I don't want to get in trouble here, but he's, he's been a fantastic EPA chief on the regulatory side, but he will not touch the science. They won't challenge it. Rick Perry, Energy Department, leading skeptic when he ran for president silent, run scared, actually says he and Al Gore have the same goals, and he lobbied for Trump to stay in the U.N. Paris Agreement. The NASA head, Bridenstine, he was a global warming skeptic right before his uh, uh, swearing in as the NASA head. He he brought Bill Nye to the State of the Union and then declared he was no longer a skeptic because he didn't want to deal with the hassle. State Department on the board no one will discuss climate science the only person in the Trump administration who would was Scott Pruitt what happened to Scott Pruitt he was ridden out of town like a common criminal why because the EPA bureaucratic staff turned against him he was the only cabinet head willing to challenge the UN the science claims go on mainstream media they had to go after him. His wife wanted help with a with a Chick Fil A. He got below average rates on an Airbnb rental. Nonsense stuff that no other cabinet member in the history of presidents would be held to. He was run out of office on, and the lesson was clear: no one will, no other administration official will now take that on because they saw what happened to Scott Pruitt. They're not going to touch it. So we have a situation now with the most skeptical president, and, and by the way, Trump himself is fantastic. He when he gets a chance even walk into a helicopter, 60 minutes, he says everything. I've done reports where I sort of translate what Trump he says it in Trumpian language, but his points are all valid. He is a pure skeptic and he's actually very articulate. It's just that he only brings it up when asked, and it's, you know, maybe once or twice a year. But no one in his administration backs him up. So we miss a historic opportunity. Now we have going forward. You know, you have Republicans fracturing on this. You have Trump, who's probably going to stay silent on the science. Again, doing fantastic on policy i'm not criticizing that but you can only go so far when you're fighting the green new deal or other stuff oh that's going to cost too much or that's the at some point you got to go after the premise and that's what the trump administration has failed on
1: yeah that's exactly right go after the premise or go home because that is what this is about and uh you're going to lose the battle for hearts and minds if you don't attack the the root of this issue which is this shoddy phony science that we keep And make no
0: mistake, we are losing the battle for hearts and minds. Um, and it, it's probably a failure on my part because I consider that, I consider that my job to do that. But I mean, I five years ago I was we have a group called Collegiates for a Constructive Tomorrow. It's part of the you know, C- Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, my parent group, which is Climate De- which runs, which uh, um, Climate Depot is a part of. And I, five eight years ago, I would speak to libertarian conservative college kids. They were with me. The last two years, I've been in shock. These kids have never even heard there's another side to global warming. So that indoctrination from kindergarten through college is working. We're seeing even conservative kids today not even aware that there's a debate on climate.
1: And what do you want to bet YouTube will helpfully pr- produce a little link to Wikipedia underneath this very video if you go to YouTube to watch oh, it, which sure. you shouldn't, but if you do, there it is. They'll not only do that, but you'll, it'll be harder to find. We're finding, Absolutely, you know, even yeah. my name, the search I'll, I'll, I'll
0: algorithms, whether it's Google or uh, specifically YouTube, they're not showing up or it'll give you 10 returns and only one, even though you put in all the right keywords, it'll be the 10th one down at the bottom. Yeah.
1: Try typing I, Climate I, been, gate" into the YouTube search engine, see what you find and see what you don't oh, find.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I did a video with Heritage Foundation, uh, a Facebook video, which was only like two minutes on the 97% consensus. It got over 10 million views. The the climate activists were so outraged. They used that as an example to lobby Zuckerberg, Facebook, to ban climate deniers and skeptics. And since that time, Facebook has really, I don't know if that was responsible, but that was one of the things they used. No one in the skeptic world has come close to any number like that because it's all suppressed. And it's powerful stuff, especially for young people, because that's where they get their world, their world is social media. And we climate skeptics have been essentially, we're just been shut out I know I sound like a pity party here. Help me. Say something positive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was so going to ask you the same thing. Um, <laughs> well, well, here is one positive thing that we can bring this back around to. People might remember that ClimateGate took place in the lead up to the uh, a- annual conference of the parties that was happening in Copenhagen in 2009, which looked like it was going to be a particularly pivotal one where they were going to come out with some text that was going to be very game-changing, which fell apart, you might remember, not only because of ClimateGate, but also because of the leaked Danish text, which the, uh, the developing world looked at this and thought, hey, I thought we, this was a gravy train. I thought we were going to get all sort of money out of this. Oh, wait, it seems like we're not. This isn't about us. I don't know what's going on. And negotiations fell apart, and uh, they didn't emerge with very much from Copenhagen that year. Uh, and if anything, perhaps that will be the sort of the the curse of... This uh, climate conference that they can continue to the festivities they continue to hold at the UN is that yeah eventually people are going to realize oh this isn't good to benefit us it is to impoverish us that is the end goal of this and I don't think that's a, a something you can sell the public on very easily.
0: Well, you can't. Here's where the UN is genius um, using the big statist you know powers that they have the countries that would be most affected would be Africa, South America, parts of Asia. You know, One billion people don't have running water and electricity. How do you get these people to sign on? Like one time, the the Indian environmental minister said it best, I will not sign on to a UN emission limiting treaty that would affect fossil fuels because nearly 40% of our people don't have running water and electricity. The problem with that is how they, they got around it by doing this. We will give your governments huge amounts of money. You'll get, in cases, billions of dollars a year uh, in order to uh, to mollify you. It'd be wealth redistribution, it'll keep you happy. And that particularly works well in Africa where you have a lot of dictatorships, no, not enough democracy, where the leaders are just like, absolutely, we'll sign on. Why do you think they're sending the most delegates to these conferences? So that's the way they get around that. Even though it's not in the self-interest of the African people, the leaders are willing to sell out because this is money on them. And even if the leaders mean well, it's still going to be a redistribution through government, through agencies. It's going to trickle down very little to the actual people. And it's not going to be, it's going to be more in the form of subsidizing them at a lower level, at a higher level of poverty. It's not going to be about wholesale development. We know Obama administration itself through the World Bank wouldn't allow vetoed coal plants and other fossil fuel energy projects in Africa due to climate concerns. I mean this is this is, the, this is the kind of thing that we're uh, facing here.
1: Well, Moore is strong, may maybe dead, but his spirit lives on in the crooks and You're swindlers right. who are still l- overseeing this process. So that was my attempt to try to wrap up on something hopeful, but you've just destroyed it. So. All right,
0: well, let me try this. I was asked by, I think it was Swedish TV about a month ago, why is it the Europeans are less skeptical, uh, you know, accept the climate and Americans don't? And I said, well, here's a simple reason. Because in Europe, when you propose wealth redistribution central planning Europeans are just beaten down they they have they've already they're way you know in terms of the state the statist governments there they don't challenge the premise, they, they accept the solutions. And I always say that about Pope Francis, the reason he accepted the global warming wasn't because he was any great scientist who looked at the issue and concluded that UN claims were right. He, they you know, like Jerry Maguire with uh, Tom Cruise, you had me at hello, well, they had him at the solutions. And and, and the solutions are essential planning, wealth redistribution. So uh, th- th- I think that is ultimately why Europeans accept the science and Americans don't. Because Americans say, well, wait a minute, Why would we need these kind of solutions? They start looking at the science much more clearly because they're rejecting the solutions. That's why we've always been inherently skeptical because we sense something's up with the solutions. And I would leave you on this. Here's my positive note. If we actually faced a climate emergency, like they're saying. The last thing we'd want to do is a Green New Deal that would centrally plan, uh, bring in massive new government regulations that would that would pick winners and losers, that would just be more subsidies to failing industries. What you would want to do is bank on what Al Gore has long argued, that there's a lot of money to be made for these entrepreneurs out there who can come up with emission-free technology. The day we can go to Walmart, put a solar panel on our house, and get off the grid is the day this whole you know, policy argument ends. So what we would want is massive you know, free markets, technolo- technological breakthrough, and encouragement. And that's all you would ever need. In other words, we're already doing what you would need to do if we face the climate emergency. You want to keep people resilient. And the way to do that is economic growth, development. I mean, the extreme weather deaths are down dramatically over the last hundred years, like 90 some percent. We just keep doing what we're doing. And I don't want to be against solar and wind, because I don't know what kind of, especially solar, any kind of technological breakthrough. I always tell people I'm not against it. But why uh, mandate energy that's not ready for prime time, solar and wind, and then uh, uh, ban energy that's proven itself worked? that's what makes no sense. And you know, if you look at, we're leading, the United States is leading the way because we're allowing fracking. And, and right now, frackings, I went and testified at the Pennsylvania State House. The governor there wants to join the regional state greenhouse gas emission things. And he wants to start getting essentially bureaucratic orders from states like Massachusetts and New York. And I told Pennsylvania, you have nothing to learn from Massachusetts and New Jersey, New York. Pennsylvania has everything to teach the rest of the world. They've allowed fracking, which has helped the U.S. lead the greatest emission drops in recent years. We're leading the world in terms of CO2 emission drops because of the transfer from coal to natural gas, which is lower emissions.
1: Well, actually, you talk about the Europeans being beaten down, but uh, I think the Yellow Vest movement, which... Really, do do yes. people remember it launched because of the, oh, suddenly we have fuel taxes that are, you know, we're going to have to spend more because of this climate change? Wait, now let's take to the streets. And I think we may be seeing more of that in the future.
0: I, I think you're right. I think that's what happened The funny thing is, on, the reason the UN summit is in uh, Madrid is, first of all, it was scheduled for Brazil. Bolsonaro, the Brazilian Trump, said, hell no, I'm not going to have the UN. He kicked it out. So then Chile says, hey, we've been doing all these UN type, you know, green policies, we'll be a showcase model country, we'll host it. So Chile hosts it. And then uh, right before it, they have all these riots based on the same thing that happened in France because of the uh, energy taxes, transportation, all because of climate policies. So they have massive death disruption, they had to cancel, now it goes over to Madrid. Um, and so this is, this is the, the problem though, is what I'm hearing about like in France, is they've somehow been able to get the french protesters to now blame energy companies i mean there's so many tools that government and media have that it's not as focused as it should be and i don't know that ultimately the yellow vest you know what's the result going to be macron's still in power they still they did they did pull back a little bit on some of the carbon taxes and stuff but those are all temporary you know because this agenda is not going anywhere. This is the modern progressive left. They've decided, and in fact, I actually quote Naomi Klein, whose book is Capitalism versus the Climate. Capitalism is incompatible with a living, cl- livable climate, this is their goal. They're using the climate scare to achieve ends they otherwise couldn't convince people of. That's what they're trying to do. Certainly working with young people, and it's working with even some, you know, Republicans, like you would expect, people like Mitt Romney, who, who's going to be the biggest disaster for the Republicans. I mean, you know, he's, he's positioning himself as I think John McCain and beyond, I mean, he wants to be much more you know, media friendly than John McCain. I mean, Romney is going he's go, he's, he's now taken up the climate mantle for Republicans.
1: All right. Well, I could talk about you uh, talk with yeah. you about this for hours, but yes. I think we've already well overstayed your time. So um, let's just uh, direct people to your website and to the book. Uh, of course, you're going to be doing your coverage of Madrid. So I'm looking forward to that. But tell us about what people can find at Climate Depot.
0: Okay, climatedepot.com is daily updated. I'll be ha- I'll be off to Madrid and I'll be having, uh, doing some videos and daily reports from the UN Climate Summit. Also, my book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, 2018 it came out. It was just updated about five months ago with a bonus chapter on the Green New Deal. So if you order it now, you get the bonus chapter and it's adapted from my testimony before the Congress on the Green New Deal. Um, but just just uh, the, the final thought here is they're going after every aspect of our lives, from our diets to meat eating. The former UN chief said we need to banish meat eating the same way smokers have been banished in restaurants. They're going after all of our transportation. They're proposing carbon ration cards that monitor your energy use. They're going after um, the species extinction movement, which the UN has now elevated, is another tool to affect all sorts of development transportation there is no end. I think the, the message of hope here is the U.S. is the last bastion of resistance. And it's led by Donald Trump. And I think, you know, I, I was talking to someone who's actually in my sequel, which is coming out in the, in the April to my film, Climate Hustle 2. They said if the United States fails, then there's no resistance left. We're the last grace hope. We can't give up our hope, our um our hope to fight this we have to keep fighting and our biggest prayer is we need to push back hard on the science and change the narrative we're in a position to do that with president trump but well, we'll see if it ever happens but that's well, my I best
1: not- hope Yeah, I'm not holding my breath for any political process here, but I still I have to speak the truth. And it's however unpopular it becomes. So I'm holding my little patch of Japan and uh, (laughs) I'll wait for the rest of the world to join me. All right. We're going to leave things there. Mark Morano, thank you so much for joining us. ClimateDepot.com. All the links will be in the show notes. Thanks again for your time.
0: Thank you, James. Appreciate it.